not this past summer, but the summer before, Joseph and I visited India. We went to Calcutta. We ran away from Sweden, where we had taught a retreat, to Australia. We were going to teach two retreats. We stopped in India because we had two teachers, have two teachers, who live in Calcutta. One is Manindra, and the other is Deepama, whom I mentioned the other night. They were getting somewhat elderly, and we hadn't seen them for many years, and it seemed to be an important responsibility to stop off and see them. So we went to Calcutta in the summer, which is the rainy season in West Bengal. The day after we arrived, we went off in the afternoon. We went to Deepama's room. She has a room in a very poor section of Calcutta. The entire time that we were speaking to her, many hours, it was raining outside. I didn't really think anything of it. But when we left at dusk, we went out into the streets, and I discovered that what happens in Calcutta in the rainy season, when there's a very heavy rain for many hours like that, is that the rain pours down and the sewers overflow and the streets become flooded, basically with sewage. So we walk outside, step out of the house, and Joseph, whom, as you know, is quite a bit taller than I am, <laughs> looks around and says, this is interesting. <laughs> and I thought, maybe, <laughs> you know, if you're six foot three. <laughs> and as we're walking, it was absolutely vile. It was like walking through human sewage. I'd walk, and I'd step off a curb, <laughs> and it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. I'd be walking along, and these things would come brushing by my legs. And <laughs> Another thing that happens in the rainy season in Calcutta is that when the sewers overflow, the rats come out, and the streets are full of rats. It was horrible. <laughs> We got fairly close to our hotel, and it was already getting dark. I had just read this book called City of Joy. Perhaps some of you have read it, <laughs> which is about people's lives in Calcutta. And one of the people in the book is a medical student who goes to Calcutta to try to serve amongst the poor there. And on his first or second night in Calcutta, he falls down a manhole in the dark, and it takes about four hours to resuscitate him, and he almost dies. So we're walking along in the dark, and remembrances of the book are flashing through my mind. And the streets of Calcutta at this time are all dug up because they're building a subway there. It was a horrible experience. It was like at every sense store being assaulted by something unpleasant. Four or five days later, we were sitting in the Sydney Opera House listening to a symphony. A friend had gotten us some tickets. 
So we're sitting in the Sydney Opera House, which is an extraordinarily beautiful building, right on the harbor, listening to Vorjak and Brahms. And everybody is clean and dressed beautifully, and the music is wonderful. It was like being surrounded by pleasure. Every sense door it was just so pleasant. That night, just before we had gone to the symphony, a friend who'd gotten us the tickets took us out to dinner. She took us to you know, one of those restaurants in cities that are on top of a very tall building and it revolves around as you eat, so you get to see this panoramic view of the city. And it was beautiful, because Sydney's a really beautiful city. We had this lovely meal, many courses. It was really beautiful, beautifully and elegantly served. It had these loving, lovely sweeping vistas of the city as we were eating. The next time this particular friend and I shared a meal, we were in Burma together. This was five or six months later. We're sitting at the same table for the time this past winter when I was there practicing. This meal that we shared, how to describe it? (laughs) Burmese food can be very oily. So the dishes that you're served, the, the actual food is usually floating in three or four or five inches of oil, as though it were gravy. The main course that day was a fairly bitter vegetable floating in oil. As you chewed this vegetable, it turned into this piece of wood pulp in your mouth. (laughs) And it was one of those experiences where you you kind of look around to see what everyone else is doing with the wood pulp in their mouth. (laughs) You know, are people swallowing this or are they spitting it out? You know, what's, what's really going on here? So I was watching this woman as she, as she kept offering me this food and thinking about the last time we had shared a meal together, which had been at the top of this building in Sydney, watching the harbor, beautiful sights, beautiful tastes. It's extraordinary. On a short scale, a few days, a few hours, a few moments, in the longer term picture, our lives continually move between contrasts. The question is, how can a human heart, my heart or your heart, absorb this? How can we live with all of this? How can we be able to hold it all with some sense of wholeness, of coherence, of harmony? How can we stay whole and in harmony with all of this instead of feeling shattered, like we can't, we can't bear it? And not only how can we stay whole and in harmony with all of this, but how can we experience freedom in all of this? Through these immense changes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss, and success and failure and praise and blame, what the, ten, what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, over and over again, Mostly, our hearts or our minds 
respond to this with a swing between elation and despair. It's like a careening back and forth over and over again. Or else we have the indifferent feeling of not noticing, of repressing, of anxiety, not having a feeling of being connected. How can we actually be connected, be fully present with all of this, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, without withering like a flower can wilt when it's out in the sun too long, the sense of withering, of wilting. The heart or the mind can shrink, it can wither or wilt like that. It can get brittle or rigid. There are qualities that are talked about in the Buddhist texts that describe a whole other way of relating to life's changes, another way of being. And so they delineate the possibilities. The qualities talked about like buoyancy of mind, which is agility and lightness, and pliancy of mind, which is sensitivity and resiliency. It's the ability to treat each situation as new rather than applying only old standards or old ideas to it. I find that quite amazing that just as in the material world some substances can be brittle and others can be resilient and pliable, so too can the mind actually be pliable, be resilient, be buoyant. The texts talk about malleability of mind, which is lack of resistance, lack of armoring. I have a friend who's about two or two and a half years old, and her favorite word in the entire world is no. It's like even if you offer her something saying, would you like this? She'll say, no, and grab it. There's very little malleability in that mind. If you look at her and you say, no, I don't think so. You know, that's not a good idea. She'll look at you and say, I need it. (laughs) There's not a lot of flexibility, of malleability. Texts talk about decisiveness of mind, which means straightness and honesty and sincerity. It's a lack of divisiveness, of unsettledness. Talk about faith or confidence, which means trusting in one's actions and one's being. It's a sense of assurance that's based on knowledge. Faith has two functions. The first of these is to clarify in the, the legends, in the poetry, in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes they compare faith to being like a jewel, a purifying jewel that's placed in a muddy and turbulent and polluted body of water. Place the jewel in the body of water and it clarifies, it brightens. The second function of faith has to do with a sense of entering into, going ahead, not holding back. It's a little bit like setting out to cross a flood, just going ahead, doing it, doing something. 
sense of inspiration. So faith manifests as non-fogginess or clarity and as resolution, sense of resoluteness. Then the last of these qualities of mind is tranquility. It means calmness and quiet, composure and serenity. All of these qualities, the buoyancy and the pliability, the straightness, the faith, the tranquility, are related to the factor of equanimity, upekka in Pali. Equanimity has the aspect of spacious stillness. It means letting be, based on a sense of trust and understanding. It's like with the seasons. Winter may come and we may not prefer it, but we trust it in a sense that it's all right, that it's there. characteristic of equanimity is its ability to arrest the mind before it falls into these wild extremes, that very violent movement for and against what our experience is. It's not an easy state to understand. It's not an easy state to describe because it's not an emotional emptiness. It's not a feeling of being barren and withdrawn from things because that is actually a very subtle form of ill will, of pushing away or striking out. It's more a sense of radiant calm. It's a sense of sufficiency. In the Tao Te Ching they say, one who knows that enough is enough will always have enough. That's the sense. It's a feeling of being able to accept things as they are, to say it is just as it is. To be like the earth. All kinds of things are cast upon the earth. Beautiful things and frightening things and terrible things and extraordinary things. But the earth does not reject any of it. The earth can hold it, can sustain its own integrity in the holding of it. Often this quality of equanimity evokes images of passivity, just not caring about things, turning into a vegetable. And so it has a certain feeling tone when it's seen in this light of being dull and being heartless. Yet what it really is is an unshakable balance of mind. It's not born out of an emotional emptiness, but it's born out of a sense of fullness, of understanding, of being complete, being in harmony. Its unshakability isn't something that's cold and dead, but it's a manifestation of great strength because it is composed of honesty and confidence and resiliency, and buoyancy, and serenity. And so it's quite an extraordinary state. It's not cold and withdrawn at all. It's difficult to understand in the same way that the quality of patience is difficult to understand. 
To be patient does not mean to be dejected and to kind of grit your teeth and wait something out, knowing it's bound to change someday. It means actually to accept fully. This is as it is. Equanimity as a factor of mind serves to balance other very beautiful and essential heart and mind qualities. We speak in Buddhism a lot about developing metta. Metta is usually translated as loving kindness. The Pali root of it is the word mid, which means softness, like a soft rain. Historically, it has grown into the word mitta, which means friend. It's the softness, the gentleness of being a friend. Developing metta means to develop this relationship of friendship with oneself and with all that lives. We develop this quality, this factor, this feeling towards all of life until it becomes boundless. It becomes like the rain, which does not discriminate, which simply falls softly. We develop metta or loving-kindness not only towards those that we like, but also towards those with whom we have difficulty, towards those whom we don't even know. We develop it towards those who are close to us, those who are far away. We develop it towards all beings everywhere as a basic statement of purpose, that this is what my life can be about. You have probably all noticed the sign in the front of the building. When we first moved here, the novitiate, as it was then, was owned by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. And that's what it said up above the the doorway, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So one day, just after we moved in, somebody got up on a ladder, started fiddling around with the letters to see what we could make of it. We came out with metta. Off and on through the years, there's been a variety of feelings about that. Sometimes people say, oh, we should take it down. You know, put up something very prosaic that people can actually understand, like Insight Meditation Society. <laughs> Instead of having to tell the UPS man and so on, well, you'll come to a building and it has white pillars and up above it says M-E-T-T-A. But I rather like it up there. Because I think even if people don't understand it, it is our expression of a sense of purpose, that this is our mission or this is our our expression, our manifestation in the world is the discovery and generation of this feeling. We develop loving-kindness without selecting and without excluding because of our understanding about interconnectedness. Several years ago, when Thich Nhat Hanh was here, he was sitting in the library with some of us, and somebody asked him a question about the Vietnam War and the terrible suffering that the people of Vietnam have had to experience because of the Vietnam War. 
Thich Nhat Hanh replied, you know, the Vietnam War did not just happen to the Vietnamese people, it happened to everybody. And it's true. It's something that happened to everybody because we are so interconnected. The quality of equanimity is what allows this sense of loving connection to embrace everybody, to embrace sentient beings impartially, considering ourselves to be fellow wayfarers on this earth. It's this quality of equanimity which allows metta to be boundless, not confined to those whom we know, whom we like, who've been generous to us, who have helped us in some way, but to everybody. It's equanimity which endows love with a sense of patience, with the ability to be constant, to endure, even if that sense of loving care is unreturned, even through all of the ups and downs, to be present, to honor that sense of connectedness. This doesn't mean that we're always sweet and nice. There was a quote some years ago in Newsweek or Time magazine. It was an interview with Miss Kentucky of 1936 or 1938 or something like that. They asked Miss Kentucky what she had to say about life. And she said, I'm so tired, I'm so tired of smiling. It's like 40 or 50 years of smiling for the camera. And that's the image that sometimes gets evoked when we think about or we hear about this sense of, of loving connectedness. You know, that we're going to have these very stupid looking smiles on our face and we're going to be so sweet, just too nice. And that's going to be very vapid. But it's not like that. There's an extraordinary possibility for us of understanding the power of unconditioned love that is not based upon something being returned. I don't know if you've ever had the experience in your life of meeting somebody like that. To meet even one person like that is an extraordinary event in life. It's unforgettable. It's transformative. Just one person who extends that feeling of loving care and connectedness, not based on something. So it's not dependent. It, can, it will not be taken away, no matter what happens. This is the strength of equanimity, infusing the feeling of loving kindness. We talk a lot in Buddhism about developing compassion. Compassion is defined as the movement or the trembling, the quivering of the heart in relationship to someone's pain, to sensing suffering or sorrow. It also is easily confused. It's easily confused with a sense of aversion or grief, which is really striking out. It's closing, not wanting things to be the way they are. This trembling, this quivering of the heart is actually a sense of opening. 
It's the factor of equanimity which makes compassion boundless, again, that allows us to generate this feeling of compassion towards all that lives, all living creatures, all those that draw breath, near or far. And it is equanimity that endows this sense of compassion with courage, with fearlessness, so that we are able to see pain again and again and not get lost in aversion, not get lost in striking out and pushing away, but are rather able to stay open to it. Equanimity comes largely from understanding, from wisdom. It especially comes from understanding relatedness, how we relate to others, how one moment relates to the next. One way of seeing relatedness is understanding the law of karma. The Buddha called karma, and the understanding of karma, the light of the world because it illuminates for us the nature of happiness and suffering in our lives and allows us to understand how to affect change. It's karma which illuminates how things work in one of the simplest possible conceptualizations of it. You can imagine the nature of a seed and a fruit, that if we take a seed of a certain kind and we plant it, it is going to bear a certain kind of fruit, that this is the law of nature. We may plant an apple seed and beg and weep and protest because we want a mango, but it's not going to work. If we want a mango, there is a way to get a mango. And that is simply to plant the mango seed. In just that way, our motives, our intentions that underlie action, all plant certain seeds. These seeds bear fruit of a certain type, a certain flavor, a certain nature. This is the law. Karma is the womb out of which we all spring. There's a meditation that is done just to strengthen the quality of equanimity, to make it quite strong. It's a reflection or a recitation of certain phrases. And the phrases go something like, all beings are the heirs or the owners of their own karma. Their happiness and unhappiness comes from their own actions, not from what I wish for them. You know, in our lives we perform an action and it doesn't disappear. It doesn't just go away or evaporate because we're connected. What we do ripples out. And what ripples out into the universe will come back in because we are connected. We are not isolated or standing alone. We can sense that in many different levels. Have you ever had the experience where your mind state at a particular time, especially if it was strong, gets reflected out in external circumstance? 
It's like you're seeing the same thing outside of yourself that you're seeing inside of yourself. There was a time in my life, many years ago, when three times in one week I got locked inside a room. I went to a friend's wedding and I got locked in a storeroom. <laughs> that same week I went to a workshop and I got locked in a bathroom. And I went to Northampton later that week and I got locked in a shopping mall. <laughs> All three times people said, this has never happened before. <laughs> there was something inside that was manifesting externally. Have you ever had that kind of experience? We can see that. We're connected. It's not so, so unknown. It's not so abstract. We can see the connections through time, that what we do today will have consequences. It doesn't just disappear. This year at IMS, we have the plague of the flies. Last year, we had cockroaches. We try as hard as we can not to kill. We end up having to weigh and balance a lot of responsibilities, a lot of different feelings. What we try is not to kill right away, automatically and mechanically, and just say, okay, you know, we hate you, you're disgusting, you know, bomb. And I think this is a very beautiful sensitivity, even though everyone has to endure some kind of discomfort as we try to weigh all this and come to a decision. Last year it was cockroaches. I was mentioning this when I was in California last spring teaching, the sense of not wanting to kill right away and trying, if at all possible, to find some other way of dealing with it. Recently somebody sent me a postcard was at that course in California. She said in the postcard that she had discovered a certain kind of lizard that would eat cockroaches. <laughs> and she recommended that we buy some because it would be a natural way of, of getting rid of the cockroaches. So I got this letter just a few weeks ago, this postcard, and I was reading it. And even aside from the sense of whether it's right or wrong to import beings to kill. <laughs> I started thinking, you know, boy, wouldn't it be strange if we did that? We brought in this lizard. And then in 10 or 20 years, we'd have created a whole new ecosystem. It's like, who knows what would follow the lizard? You know, we bring in this creature. 10 years later, we've got snakes or something. I don't know. It's like very strange because we're quite connected. We can't do something like that, thinking it's going to end with the one action. It goes on and on. It ripples out and it comes back. If we can understand this sense of connectedness, of not living in isolation, then there is much less fear in our lives because we don't feel victimized by what is going on. We don't have the sense of alien forces oppressing us we can understand the cause and effect. When we understand that, we can understand how to change our lives. We can see that when we can change our relationship to what is happening right now, 
in this moment's experience, then we can change our lives. What we undergo now may be the karmic fruit of previous times of greed or hatred in the mind. We experience that in this moment. To respond to that by planting further seeds of greed and of hatred, it makes no sense. No sense at all. When we understand this level of connectedness, then we understand that everything that befalls us is really ourselves. In everything we meet, we are meeting ourselves. This is equanimity. To say that all beings are the heirs or the owners of their own karma, their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them, doesn't mean that we shun them, that we just push them away and say, you know, oh, you miserable person all the way over there in the far distant, you know, that's really too bad that you're suffering like that. It doesn't mean that because we are all connected. And yet we can understand that we each need to take responsibility for our own happiness. That this happiness is born out of our actions, out of our mind state, out of our relationship to what is happening. This is wisdom. It can be a very terrible thing to live in objective suffering, to live in poverty, in disease. So I'm not trying to trivialize that in any way. And it's not only in Calcutta that it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing right here. To suffer from deprivation, not being able to get something, not having access, not having independence. It can be very awful. And yet we also shouldn't trivialize the power of the mind to create happiness or unhappiness, because it is a very extraordinary power. There was a time last winter when I was here teaching all winter and Joseph was on retreat. Just in the day that he came out of retreat, we received quite an angry letter from somebody. It was one of those letters, you know, which you'd really rather not get, which listed a lot of circumstances and situations that had happened and said, well, that was your fault, and that was your fault, and that was your fault, and that was your fault too. It wasn't too pleasant. And I spent the day, having read this letter, finding that quite often in my mind I would be composing responses. Mostly the responses ran along the lines of, well, actually, it's not our fault, it's your fault, and that was your fault, and that was your fault, and that was your fault too. I just sort of spent the day spinning it out, watching it going on. It just so happened that that night a friend brought a Tibetan Lama to visit here. This Lama had lived in a cave in the Himalayas for about 15 years. He hadn't left his cave. He was a master of the Tibetan practice of tummo, of raising the body heat through power of mind. 
At one point, the Dalai Lama had gone to him in the cave and had asked him if he would consider coming to America to be studied. Because as the world of scientists tries to understand meditation, they like quite a lot to have effects that are measurable. And so here was this person who could raise his body heat through concentrating the mind, and that was a very measurable thing. The Dalai Lama made this request, and the monk said, yes, he'd come. He went to Boston, took him apparently from the airport to the hospital. He spent many days meditating, and they kept taking his temperature. (laughs) Then at some point, this friend suggested that he come out here, because it's not that far away. He came, and he walked in the door. The first thing he said was, boy, this place seems so different from the rest of America. He said, what do you do here? So we told him, we talked, we spent the evening together. He had a very young and articulate translator with him. The translator was telling us that this monk was considered quite extraordinary within the Tibetan tradition because he had gone very far in his meditation practice, very fast, He'd become a monk quite late in life, according to their tradition. He hadn't done any of the preliminary practices which were usually considered to be absolutely essential to slowly build a foundation, to be able to master more difficult and subtle practices. He hadn't done any of that. He hadn't done the study. He hadn't done the initial practices. He was considered quite a puzzle because of that. And so we asked the Lama himself, do you have any idea of why you should have made such extraordinary progress in your practice, not having fulfilled these usual preliminaries? And he said, yes, I do have an idea. He said, when I was a layperson in Tibet, for many years I was a guerrilla fighter. Often I would capture people, and I would torture them, and I would kill them. At some point in my life, I was captured myself by the Chinese. I was put in in prison, and I was tortured, and I underwent tremendous suffering. He said, but I made a commitment in that time not to hate the Chinese people. He said he saw it in quite classical Buddhist terms, which was that what he was experiencing was the fruit of his previous action. He was experiencing the karmic fruit of it. But even not seen in those terms, we can understand that nobody outside of us can make us suffer mentally. The worst that someone can do to us is make us suffer physically. And that he made a decision not to add the fire of hatred and bitterness to the terrible torment he was undergoing physically. And he said he thought it was this decision that allowed him to make this extraordinary progress in his practice. And as he was speaking, I was sitting there, and I began to get images in my mind of this letter that I had been composing all day saying, that's your fault, and that's your fault, and that's your fault, too. And I realized I did not have to do it. 
This is not like being Miss Kentucky. This is understanding what is genuinely possible for a human being with a human heart. To understand that, as the Buddha said, hatred will never cease by hatred. Never. Hatred can only cease by love or by lack of hatred. It's the development of the power of equanimity which allows us this possibility not to get caught up in that immediate reaction, that conditioning, to be vengeful, to push away, to hurt back. It allows us so much possibility. Equanimity understands relatedness, how things are connected, how our actions are connected to our present experiences, how our present actions are connected to the future, how we are connected to one another, all beings. Do you know the yin-yang symbol, which is like a circle with a sort of S formation in it, one side being dark and one side being light? Right in the thickest part of the dark section is a small circle of light. And right in the thickest part of the light section is a small circle of darkness. It's the dark and the light, and being able to accommodate both. Even in the thickest part of the darkness, there is light implicit. Even in the light, the darkness is known, it's accepted, it's recognized. There's no split there, there's no division. This comes from being able to be in the dark, in the darkness, without hatred, without self-pity, without fear, comes from being able to be in the light without clutching and clinging, not wanting it to go away, not wanting to lose it. It's the understanding that in a very fundamental way, we are simply not in control. That this body will grow old, it will get hurt, that the mind will get hurt, and still we can be okay. Even we can be happy. We can be free. The happiness comes from the space that surrounds the experience, not from the experience itself. It comes from the resiliency and the lightness and the buoyancy, the faith, the serenity that can be there no matter what is happening, whether it's pleasant or it's painful, whether we're in the streets of Calcutta or sitting in the Sydney Opera House. One of the greatest tools that we have in the development of equanimity apart from sheer mindfulness, is called inclining the mind. It's very important to try to understand what this means. Inclining the mind means to hold something as a value, to hold the possibility of it in the mind. It's not to be confused with grasping or getting attached. It's more a sense of knowing that something 
is in fact a genuine possibility. And we can turn towards it out of the host of possibilities that present themselves in any moment. We can turn towards this one in any situation. I used to use examples all the time of living in India and what it was like to live in India, to get into a train one night for an 18-hour journey and to travel all night and then to wake up back where you started, little things like that that characterize life in Asia. My most recent examples all come from designing and trying to build a house. What happens when you're working with an architect and the architect tells you that the major chance you have for constructing this house will be if the winter is quite delayed this year and then it snows on October 4th, basically for the first time in a century. What happens? Is wanting the house the primary value of that moment or is purity of mind the primary value of that moment? What happens the next day when it turns 70 degrees? Is wanting the house the primary value or is purity of mind the primary value? And so it's not repressive. It's not this terrible conflict within ourselves about how to be, but it's continually turning towards what is possible, what we value, what we know we can do, because that is what the inherent potential of a human mind is. So we turn the mind towards loving-kindness, we incline the mind towards compassion, and always we incline the mind towards equanimity. We do this because we can learn to respect the extraordinary power and beauty of this quality of equanimity and also respect our ability to achieve it. Let's sit together a bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.